Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to those of you joining us for today's discussion on China and Northern Europe, co-sponsored by the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies and the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies here at Harvard University. My name is James Evans, and together with my co-moderator, Nargis Casanova, I'm delighted to welcome three expert panelists to discuss how Nordic and Baltic countries are approaching their relations with China. Northern Europe's cooperation with China has been mixed in recent years. Recent public opinion surveys about Europeans' attitudes towards China show a division in countries' views of China's growing international footprint. China is increasingly in Europe's news from issues around 5G and digital security to Chinese investment and trade, human rights, and concerns about the Arctic and the environment, all underpinned by a growing uneasiness in Europe with China's increasingly aggressive foreign policy tone. Key questions remain as to whether room for cooperation between Europe and China is shrinking, how Europe can coordinate its foreign policy response, and how news about China is playing an increasing role in domestic political debates across Europe. Events like today's panel play a key role in helping us to better understand China and its interactions with the world. The timing of today's event, however, comes just a week or so after China announced sanctions against academics and institutions in Europe, the UK and North America, including against one of today's panelists. As a center for Chinese studies, the Fairbank Center prides itself on open exchange between scholars and researchers who work on China based on respect and scholarly integrity. To paraphrase the Center for Strategic and International Studies remarks about last week's announcement, the place to challenge international think tanks and experts is not in the visa line or the courtroom, but through scholarly exchange. We hope that today's event will hope prove the benefit of such exchanges to increasing our collective understanding of China in its myriad forms. For now, I will hand over to Dr. Castanova to introduce today's panelists. Thank you very much, James. Uh, we have a su super panel with us today uh, to discuss the Northern Europe's response to China's Belt and Road Initiative. And let me start by introducing Dr. Una Alexandra Berzina-Cherenkova, who is head of the China Study Center at the Riga Stratens University, and also head of the Asia program at the Latvian Institute of International Affairs. Um, she, she has held also positions of a senior visiting research scholar at Fudan University School of Philosophy and the Fulbright visiting scholar position at the Center for East Asia Studies at Stanford University. She publishes on um, PRC political discourse, contemporary Chinese ideology, EU-China relations, as well as um, Belt and Road and other transcontinental interconnectivity initiatives. Una is a member of the European Think Tank Network on China. Let me introduce our next panelist, Dr. Bjorn Yarden. Uh, who is director of the Swedish National China Center. He has a PhD in political science from Stockholm University. He has been a visiting fellow at National Tianqi University, National Taiwan University, National Chiangkung University. And also I'm very happy to say that he was a visiting fellow at the Harvard University Fairbank Center uh, for Chinese studies that is co-hosting uh, today's event. Uh, he writes on security politics, great power politics, China, Japan, and uh, the United States. And he's also a member of the European Think Tank Network on China. 
Um, last but not least uh, is Dr. Luke Petty, who is a senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies. Uh, he's also lead senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, um, University of Oxford, where he heads the Institute's Africa research. He has been a visiting scholar at the UN University in Tokyo, uh, the Social Science Research Council, Peking University, uh, and Center for Studies and International Research in Paris. His current research focuses on China's foreign and security policy and Chinese foreign investment and trade with a focus on China's relations in Europe, Africa, and East Asia. Uh, and I should be amiss not to notice, note his new book, uh, How China Loses the Pushback Against Chinese Global Ambitions, uh, that, um, that has just been published, isn't it? this year by Oxford University Press. So without further ado, let's uh, move to the discussion. And I want to start with, uh, with you, Una. And uh, could you uh, tell us what's been happening um, in, the, in the Baltic states? Uh, what, what do we see? What changes do we see in perceptions, uh, in, uh, uh, in expectations from, from the BRI, you know, the factors that shape the, um, the Baltic states' responses and approaches to the BRI. Una, the floor is yours. Thank you, dear Nargis. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here today. And let me start my countdown clock. Um, and uh, so um, let me just um, start by um, saying that um, when we look at the, the Baltic uh, uh, tango with Belt and Road, uh, there is a timeline here that I want to show you. I will not dwell upon it because it would eat, eat all, all of my time, but the important uh, year is uh, 2012. That was way before the Baltics signed the Belt and Road Memorandum of Understanding, but that is when the Baltics joined uh, a Chinese initiative for Central and Eastern Europe, grudgingly, but yet um, with, with hopes for economic benefits. Um, and uh, the Belt and Road Memorandum was not signed until six, uh, 2016, but all the countries that were included in the 16 plus one cooperation were also kind of overlapping with Belt and Road. So you can, you can say that there's a, um, a murky um, uh, connection here. Uh, and starting 2018, China has been getting securitized more and more. It started with, uh, with the reports from the intelligence community and then it went further on. Uh, 2019 was crucial because the Baltics all signed joint uh, declarations with the US effectively pledging to exclude Huawei from the 5G uh, networks. And uh, 2020 was important because uh, after uh, April, uh, sorry, August uh, uh, Belarus um, elections and uh, the, the outcome and the protests, um, the, the, the idea, the dream of becoming the sea exit for Belt and Road, for the Belarus uh, Belt and Road projects kind of uh, went away. And 2021 goes back to the 16 plus one, which is now called uh, 17 plus one already after Greece joined. And all three Baltic um, governments were, uh, it was called a snub. So basically did not attend the summit, which was chaired by Xi Jinping, uh, sent uh, foreign ministers and minister of transportation. And so what's next, what's to come? That's, that's the question I wanna to answer today. So I will be only focusing on the two, uh, on these two um, key 
period. So the beginning and the future. So when, when the Baltics started uh, thinking about joining China's uh, uh, new creative uh, multilateral initiatives, the rationale was the situation that we were facing here in Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia alike was A, Russia's transit was decreasing. And that was something that we've been relying on. And B, everybody seemed to have, have been ha having business with doing business with China, except us. And it seemed like, oh my God, everybody's trading with China. There's money there and, and we're not in that game. We're not at that table. So let me just uh, quickly show you, the, the, this is from the Latvian Ministry of Transportation. So you see that the railroad um, the transit had been uh, stagnating and falling, uh, even starting from 2012. And the ports, well, you see there is some, uh, some fluctuation here, but basically this is stagnation. This is what stagnation looks like. And this is not good for the economy that has transit as one of its priorities. As for being late to the game and not being at the table, obviously there were no official Belt and Road maps, but whenever anyone would put, uh, would put together a Belt and Road uh, outline we were never there it had everything it had southeast asia it had central asia it had europe central europe it had middle the middle east but it never included um uh, the baltic states you see here would be the the um uh, where where they would be positioned um so uh back to the baltic rationale those were the realities we were faced with uh, now, but we also saw that there were opportunities here for our export. That was the big hope, uh, attracting some Chinese investment and also, like I said, transit. Now, the advantages that the Baltics uh, presented themselves to have, first of all, were the Central Asia links and expertise. And that's why I'm so happy that we're having this seminar and we're finally bringing together two sides of this continent and we're linking and we're acknowledging the importance of Central Asia in this, because this was one of the key arguments saying the Baltics had been uh, historically within the EU framework and uh, um, uh, beyond have been advocating for more involved and engaged Central Asia policy due to our shared histories of the Soviet period and also with, due to uh, many links up to this day. Now, second of all, the second advantage that the Baltics argued they had was this Belarus experience, right? The fact that the Belarus is just there and Belarus is crucial to Belt and Road. So, uh, let us let us see what can be done here. So the geography basically here. Now for the risks, and I want to be very clear here that the Baltics from the get-go were, were very clear about the risks. Uh, being late to the game has its advantages. You saw that there was some questionable business logic, problems with transparency. So basically, why would China want this if, if uh, the Baltics had been referred by Chinese think tankers to be the Baltic cul-de-sac? So second of all, um, the problems with, with, with the investment and the transparency. Then the fact that even if you succeed, you become overly dependent, and we all know what, what the, the Australian example and beyond that. Now, the value argument was also present in the public discourse. I would not say it was dominant, but it was certainly always there, and it has been picking up pace since 2019. And of course, geopolitics, uh, with the US being the primary guarantor of our national sovereignties, um, and NATO uh, and, and being the, at the cornerstone of our security policy, geopolitics mattered. Now, and so the main, the main question was, could we be resilient enough with all these problems, opportunities, advantages and risks in mind to benefit, to find a way to benefit from China's Belt and Road and China in general? And I wanna argue that 
yes, we haven't really benefited much, but we have stayed resilient. And I want to present my argument along three lines. So we know that the three deadly sins of Belt and Road are, first of all, uh, strains on democracy. Second of all, Chinese values. And especially after Xi Jinping has started with his positive value agenda, we see that that's been the issue. And third of all, obviously, debts, infrastructure loans. Now, and I want to, and the question that we ask here, if if these all three, if these three are the same along the Belt and Road, then what can be the decisive factor and does local agency matter? And I argue that it really does. So what happened in the Baltic case is that um, uh, it pre presented uh, systemic resilience as the response to the strains on democracy uh, um, sin of Belt and Road. So first of all, yes, we can trade, we can do this, but uh, first of all, there's very strong anti-authoritarian sentiment along the across the Baltic states. Uh, the polls show, and we've polled extensively, strong Euro-optimism and very heavy pro-Atlanticism, um, even in the in the in the in the period in, in during the initial NATO crisis uh, at the Trump and the Trump administration. So that means that yes, business can be done. There are some things that we can do, but no to Huawei on 5G, no to new tech when it won the bid in Lithuania to provide um, scanning equipment for airports, and no to Klaipa, the port acquisition by Chinese uh, state-owned companies because it is a NATO port, and strong, reliable investment screening laws that preceded EU-wide screening laws. Now back to the now to the second, the discursive resilience. So we see that when China negotiates with the EU, uh, there is very little sea um, speak in those documents. It's basically very European. Seven minutes. Uh, so, um, but when uh, China comes in with MOUs that are Belt and Road or 16 plus one, 17 plus one MOUs, you see all these um, discursive traits, and so. The Baltic position was no to discourse injection, keeping the EU speak, including on values. Now, all of the memoranda are not available, but this one is the Latvian Ministry of Foreign Affairs put the draft online, and that's the only one that we can see. We see it still has some Chinese political discourse, but it's, to be honest, it's, it's been toned down quite a bit. Now to the financial resilience, no on infrastructure loans immediately. We have EU financing available, and that was, that was the argument from the get-go. And no on Chinese component promises. When, um, uh, so if, if, uh, if the Chinese partners come and say, we will provide you with very good prices, but you make sure that this company wins the bid and that you buy, uh, that 50% of it is Chinese component, Chinese technology, Chinese uh, company, just say no. So let me just conclude here in a few scattered concluding remarks. So first of all, later to the game, something that we were worried about in 2012, turn out to be a blessing in disguise. We got to learn from others. We got to assess the risks uh, accordingly. Now, secondly, Baltic and maybe Nordic approach, and we will hear what Björn has to say about it. And Björn, by the way, I would like to use this opportunity to again express um, that I stand, stand with you and stand by you as a colleague and as a respected academic. So maybe Björn will speak more about this, but the Baltic approach comes back to be the same eventually. So even if there are some minute differences, Lithuania is more outspoken on the values. Latvia is kind of holding back, waiting out. They will all be the same. I, I would believe so. I've been wrong before, but God, I hope I'm not wrong this time. So because of the both national and international factors. 
Third of all, uh, I believe that resilience to Belt and Road is rooted in local agencies. In lo so strong, resilience, resilient local institutions is what you need, uh, not completely cutting off everything uh, China related, but just local resilience. Now, again, is the question that was asked at the beginning is, is this room for cooperation shrinking? Certainly so. There are many more um, security related um, uh, security related aspects that we cannot uh, cooperate in, but there is still some room left. Now, Eurasian connectivity still matters to the Baltics. We have not given up on this, and but it just doesn't. Uh, the Belt and Road turned out to be to have its problems, but we still hope for the EU outlook on connectivity. We we want to participate in all of these competing ideas because Eurasian connectivity is important for us, even the Japanese and the Indian outlooks, right? And the concluding point here is that Central Asia still matters and will always matter for Baltic policies in this context. Thank you very much. Looking forward to your questions and comments. Thank you so much, Una, and special thanks for the last last point that you made regarding <laughs> regarding the importance of Central Asia. Um, let's let's move to Bjorn. Bjorn, uh, what's the uh, what's the Nordic approach to the BRI? Uh, have we seen any changes or continuities in the approaches? Uh, so yeah, the flow is yours. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much, and uh, I, I do indeed see some similarities with the situation in the Baltic countries, our neighbors to the east. Um, but first of all, uh, let me say that it's great to be back at Harvard. As James mentioned earlier, I was a visiting fellow at Fairbanks Center five years ago. I had a wonderful time. It was a very important experience for me personally. So I'm very happy uh, to be back with the Harvard community. Um, and uh, I won't talk that much about BRI, uh, partly because it hasn't really been that central in the relations between China and the Nordic countries in recent years. Um, but uh, if, if we take the overall uh, look at the Nordic countries' relations with China, uh, what, what's in these relationships for China? Obviously, the Nordic countries are not great powers. Uh, we are not at the same level uh, of importance as big European countries such as France and Germany. But I still think this region matters and ha has mattered for some years to China. First of all, the Nordic countries are rich countries uh, with open economies, uh, open to trade and investment. Uh, the Nordic countries are innovative. Uh, if we look at the Global Innovation Index, for example, Sweden ranks number two, Denmark number six, Finland number seven. So there's much there to learn uh, for China when it comes to developing the Chinese economy. Uh, the Nordic countries have uh, developed social models social welfare states. That is also something that the Chinese have been looking at. Uh, and all the Nordic countries rank very high on the human development index, for example. Uh, also environmental protection is something that has been of interest to the Chinese for quite some time. Uh, so the Nordic brands are, are quite strong in China. Uh, and, and we have evidence of this from uh, opinion polls uh, as well. Uh, Chinese, to the extent that they know about the Nordic countries, have quite positive views of these countries. Uh, and of course, also uh, the Arctic uh, factor is something that has been more uh, important in recent years as China's interest in the Arctic has grown. There is also a long history of relations between the Nordic countries and China. Sweden was the first uh, non-communist European country establishing relations with China in May 1950. And Denmark followed closely thereafter, and then Finland and Norway as well. Uh, so there's some history here as well. 
However, if we look at relations uh, in the last uh, one or two decades, uh, we can see that there's also been more conflict between China and Nordic countries than uh, what has been normal uh, in China-Europe relations. And, and much of this conflict has revolved around values, as Una also mentioned. Um, and human rights has an important role in the foreign policy of the Nordic countries. It's part of the self-image to stand up for human rights around the world. Uh, and this has clashed at a number of instances with China's priority to protect what it calls its uh, core interests. Um, and uh, China's core interests are basically matters that, that concern uh, central priorities of the state, uh, such as uh, Tibet, Taiwan, Xinjiang, uh, the con continuation of, of uh, one-party rule and so on. Uh, and this has led to conflict uh, between China and Denmark, China and Norway, and China and Sweden in the last couple of decades. If we start with Denmark, uh, after uh, the Tiananmen massacre in 1989, Denmark was one of the most active countries in, in criticizing uh, China's government for this. Um, and what also the, one of the countries that, that waited the longest with, with normalizing relations. Um, uh, in 1997, Denmark also took the initiative to sponsor a China critical resolution in, in what was then called the UN Commission on Human Rights. Um, and if we move forward a bit, uh, in 2009, uh, Denmark's newly appointed prime minister uh, received the Dalai Lama. And this, of course, led to, to a lot of uh, Chinese criticism. Um, in Norway as well, um, the Norwegian Nobel Committee, which is independent from the Norwegian government, uh, awarded uh, Dalai Lama as well, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize in 1989. It led to a very strong Chinese criticism. Then again in 2010, uh, a Chinese dissident, uh, Liu Xiaobo, was also awarded uh, the same prize, and that led to an even stronger Chinese reaction. And China basically froze uh, political relations for, for uh, around six years. Uh, in Sweden, uh, 2015, a Swedish citizen, Wei um, Min Hai, uh, who was active as a, a writer and bookseller in Hong Kong, was kidnapped from his holiday home in Thailand and has since been detained in China. And this was the start of, of uh, uh, sustained tensions in Sweden-China relations. And uh, the Chinese foreign ministry has since spearheaded a campaign of, of criticism toward um, people in Sweden, voicing criticism toward the um, Chinese government. And this has been going on now uh, for around two years. And since uh, December 2019, the Chinese government has repeatedly threatened Sweden with economic sanctions uh, and has also sanctioned uh, some Sweden politicians, uh, has prohibited uh, showing Swedish movies at film festivals in China and so on. Uh, so there's been some, some tensions here. And uh, in all of these cases, uh, we can see that there has been a clash between um, the ambition uh, of these countries to, to stand up what they see as human rights, and also uh, China's very strong and sustained criticism of this. Um, and I would say that Denmark and Norway, uh, arguably as well, eventually conceded to China's demands. They published various letters showing recognition or at least understanding of China's core interests. Uh, and Denmark and Norway also 
establish a comprehensive strategic partnership, sorry, Denmark and China, comprehensive strategic partnership, while Norway was able to normalize uh, uh, diplomatic relations with China. Uh, this has not happened between Sweden and China. I think it's very unlikely that it will happen. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's also important when we look at these various conflicts, uh, I think on the Nordic side, uh, the, the uh, origins of these ambitions to, to stand up for human rights stems from self-image of these countries. It's not really that much connected to the more geopolitical tensions we have been seeing uh, in recent years. It's not that much connected to, to American pressure, uh, although it uh, also plays uh, a role. Uh, and we have seen political pressure from China, but also economic pressure uh, to some extent, uh, a bit against Norway, a bit more against uh, uh, Denmark. Uh, now we are seeing um, sorry, a, a bit more against, uh, a bit less against Denmark and a bit nor, uh, more against Norway. And, and now, of course, we're also seeing uh, a state-led uh, boycott, uh, or uh, at least the signed boycott against the Swedish company H&M uh, going on right now uh, in China. Um, and finally, uh, I, I think that uh, China's way to handle these conflicts, initially it met some success, both when it came to the Danish case and the Norwegian case. Uh, but, but I think this has become increasingly difficult for China to achieve its aims as the public perception of China have, has become very negative in the Nordic countries. And, and looking at opinion polls, um, it seems that uh, at least Sweden and Denmark, the publics in these countries are, are among the most um, negative toward the Chinese government in, in all of Europe. And uh, relations have become politicized to a greater extent. I think this is pretty much uh, quite a lot uh, a bottom-up uh, phenomenon. Uh, we've seen a canceled um, uh, local government-to-government -government cooperation with China, closed Confucius Institutes and so on, and also quite a lot of uh, pressure on the governments in these Nordic countries coming from the various parliaments. So, so um, uh, it, on, on, on the whole, I would say that, that China's influence in these countries uh, might have been shrinking in recent, in recent years. It's, it's becoming more difficult to China to, to prevent these countries from, from uh, uh, bringing up these uh, human rights concerns uh, publicly. Thank you very much, uh, Bjorn. Uh, let's let's move to Luke. Luke, Luke, what's what's your take on it? Thanks very much, and thanks to Harvard for for the invitation to to speak. And it's great to be here with Una and Bjorn. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the economic side of uh, China's relationship with the Nordic region and the Belt and Road in particular. Um, you know, the Belt and Road, very broadly speaking, uh, one of the main attractions countries have to it is that it creates the possibility for enhancing economic connectivity with the second largest economy in the world and, and, grow, and growing trade, finance, investment, infrastructure, and technology ties with China. And I think when uh, President Xi launched it in 2013, uh, initially the Nordic region was, was quite puzzled with the aims behind the initiative, but they did see the possibility um, for the Belt and Road acting as a driver of new connectivity with China. Uh, for example, in a joint article 
in a Danish newspaper called Jyllands Post in 2015, the then, the then uh, Danish foreign minister um, uh, and the Chinese ambassador wrote that they hoped to work together on the Belt and Road Initiative in the context of China-EU cooperation and facilitate personal um, business goods, capital, and technology across uh, the uh, Euro-Asian continent. So there was this positivity um, to uh, the, the, the initial launch of the Belt and Road among some in the Nordic region. And scholars at the time uh, saw the Belt and Road as perhaps could gain traction with the Nordic countries since they had recently signed up for uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, despite the efforts of, of the Obama administration for European countries to avoid doing so. But to date, no, no Nordic countries have signed up to the Belt and Road. Um, it seems like a bygone error that a, a Western European foreign minister would write a joint article with a Chinese ambassador. And this was just you know five, six years ago. Uh, and during the last Belt and Road Forum in 2019, uh, Nordic capitals either sent low-level delegations or none at all to attend. So on top of the political challenges that have come from the relationship that Björn outlined, um, I want to sort of outline the nuance that's come into the economic relationship between the Nordic regions and China. So let's start with um, China's role as an economic partner with the Nordic region. So since the turn of the century, China has emerged as a top 10 partner for Nordic countries in terms of trade. Um, for investment in 2019, um, although China's investment in Europe has dropped quite significantly in recent years, Northern Europe was the largest recipient that year of, of Chinese income and investment. The last time that took place was in 2010. Uh, and one of those big deals back then was the Chinese automaker uh, Geely bought the iconic Swedish company Volvo Cars. At the same time, however, uh, it's important not to exaggerate China's economic importance to, to the Nordic region and Europe. Uh, trade opportunities in the Chinese marketplace are not as strong as many assume. For example, in 2019, China just made up 4% of Finland's trade 5% of Sweden's and 6% of Denmark. And you know, Danish trade in the last couple of years has been boosted by pork sales to China, uh, which were a consequence of the African swine flu wiping out China's pork population, a large portion of it, portion of it at least. For Norway, uh, oil exports have been rising to China in recent years. This again was coincidental because of uh, attacks on a Saudi oil refinery, um, a declining oil in Angola led to, to Chinese refineries reaching out to Norway. So we have these sort of new agri and natural resources exports to China, but it's not what one would expect um, coming from the innovative and advanced economies of the Nordic region. So there are, have also been concerns uh, with, with Chinese competition uh, in the Nordic region of late. So, you know, the main point I want to make is that connectivity, it brings these cooperation benefits, but it also brings competition. And, and, and in, in the Nordic region, um, this really came about because the sense of competition came about because many of these Chinese investments uh, were acquisitions um, and they were connected with China's Made in China 2025 policy to advance its uh, manufacturing capabilities 
uh, to advance its, its share in uh, advanced manufacturing and high-tech sectors, which were a threat to, to manufacturing in Europe and elsewhere. So because for the last uh, 10 years, uh, much of the, the Chinese investment in the EU, 95% um, of it has been targeted towards acquisitions. Uh, this of course created uh, some concern in the Nordic region and throughout Europe. This was reinforced by the fact that investing in China was still very difficult to do uh, and still is. Uh, investment restrictions in China are four times higher than the OECD average. So there remains a lack of, of market reciprocity between Chinese investments um, in, in the EU and, and EU investments in China. And so Nordic, com Nordic companies, Nordic CEOs are, are starting to realize that Chinese competition is rising, um, not only within China, but also in their own uh, home region in the EU, but also in third markets. So you can think of Huawei in, in, in telecoms for Ericsson and Nokia, and you can think of Costco shipping for, for the Danish shipper Mask. Of course, the EU-China uh, investment deal, uh, if it's ratified, if it's implemented, if it's properly enforced, may alleviate some of these concerns. But the market access that opens up, that may open up from, from this agreement is not as extensive uh, as hoped. So for, the, for these reasons, um, you know, the Nordic countries really shifted their, their view or had a more nuanced view of economic uh, engagement with China. The, these countries were once defenders of open markets. Uh, and this new view of, of China really uh, created some caution in their, in their sentiment. And this led uh, the five Nordic countries to meet in late 2018 to, dis to discuss how they could increase scrutiny of foreign investments, uh, largely with China on their mind. Uh, and, and Norway and, and Finland have already enhanced their own national investment screening mechanisms and Denmark and Sweden have been discussing these and, and pushing forward them in certain sectors. So finally, very briefly, I wanna talk about the fact that connectivity has also brought geopolitical challenges um, to the Nordic region. Now, foreign, foreign experts in Denmark uh, and perhaps elsewhere in the Nordic region, they often comment that China is far away. So therefore it doesn't really play into the region's geopolitics. This is no longer true. Um, we see this because uh, under President Trump, for example, the US applied pressure on Denmark to prevent Chinese infrastructure, uh, finance and investments in Greenland. We see the Danish and Swedish defense intelligence services raising their concern of dual civilian military use of Chinese infrastructure in the Arctic. Uh, there are, you know, private investors and localities in the Nordic region that still seek to attract Chinese finance and infrastructure development, uh, particularly through the Polar Silk Road. But concerns about Chinese engagement in the Arctic region uh, connected to the, the Nordic region uh, through, through the capitals uh, has grown of, of late. So altogether, uh, you know, trade and investment continues. Uh, Belt and Road cooperation may still develop in the future, but economic competition and geopolitical challenges have also grown with the, with the possibilities of new connectivity between China and the Nordic region. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Uh, well, it's a very com complex picture. 
uh, let's let me ask some questions and uh, I'll ask my own questions and I'll put also questions uh, from that we already received from the audience. And first set of questions for Una. Um, Una, you mentioned Eurasian connectivity. Do you envision more uh, competitive or cooperative dynamic in this space? Uh, we also got a question um, regarding your reference to the three deadly scenes. Is this a judgment from the Nordic perspective? So who coined this <laughs> three deadly scenes phrase? Uh, and also a question on um, Russia-China relations. Um, and what will be the impact uh, of changing Russia-China relations on the Baltic states and well, Nordic states as well? How you see uh, these dynamics? Would you like me to shoot right away? Okay, thank you. Oh, oh if you if you want, I can. No, I can, no, perfect. I, I can I, I'm I'm very happy to. Um, so, competition or cooperation in terms of Eurasian connectivity? I'm sure, just like, and to, pardon me for for uh, linking back to the Silk Road narrative, but we know that there there has never been one Silk Road, right? The, the Eurasian connectivity has always been multi multifaceted, competitive, and bloody and uh, complicated in this centuries ago. And I think it's also true now, minus the bloody part. Um, and so it will definitely be, uh, the, so let me just put it this way. The more open it is, the more, um, the, uh, competition is not a bad thing. So let there be competition and we can cooperate. I think it links back to what Luke said. Um, now three deadly sins. All right, uh, thank you for, for challenging me on this, um, dear. Um, uh, dear listener, this is something that I just uh, uh, put up because these these once you analyze the the uh, critique of Belt and Road in European media, including the Baltic media, and also in in polit the political discourse in Europe and beyond, you're going to find these reoccurring three um, issues that that are being put out as the problems with Belt and Road are. There's definitely more. But I'm glad that I touched us, um, uh, touched you with this phrase, and I'm definitely open to criticism here. Now on Russia, China, that's an extremely complicated question, and I think Ulf asked it, and um, and um, uh, it's because he also knows that I'm working on on a book on Russia, China right now. Um, I think that um, the uh, initially mm, the Baltics regarded Russia, uh, sorry, China, as a way to somehow rein in Russia. Uh, we wanted to benefit from Eurasian connectivity, but um, we thought that if Russia were to sabotage it, because you have to cross Russia, right, uh, then China could be able to um, exert some leverage and say, um, don't sabotage this, we need this. That did not come to be. Um, and right now, as we see that in that there is some rapprochement definitely and they're toying with the word alliance or as Dmitry Trenyan puts it, um, an entente between Russia and China. Uh, uh, it's quite clear that China could never, would not challenge Russia for the benefit of the three small Baltic states. So let me leave it here, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Bjorn, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the importance of human rights and indeed uh, Nordic countries so often referred to as moral superpowers, but at the same time, they managed, uh, well, to combine the kind of this, uh, uh, this normative agenda with uh, fairly pragmatic, uh, pragmatic foreign policies. Mm -hmm. um, 
And you mentioned the Nobel Prize, the Dalai Lama uh, incidents, but at the same time, uh, simultaneously, the the, uh, the the relations were seen uh, by uh, Chinese uh, decision makers as uh, comparatively smooth. I'm I'm, I'm quoting uh, a, a Chinese diplomat here. Uh, do we see kind of some fundamental change now? Mm -hmm. This balance now sort of, you know, kind of not possible, uh, not possible anymore. Uh, we passed this kind of milestone. Uh, and uh, what do you think about the kind of um, EU European strategic autonomy? Uh, Will it be the right course of action with regard to China? And and I'm referring here to obviously to the kind of transatlantic relationship, you know, alliance with the US. Should they be together? Should they kind of is it better for the EU to practice a somewhat different uh, different approach? Uh, right. Thank you very much. Um, very good questions. Uh, and I agree with you that uh, traditionally, I think this is actually still the case, all Nordic countries try to adopt a pragmatic and realistic policy toward China. There's no interest among the Nordic countries to escalate um, any conflict uh, with China. However, I, I think that this kind of balancing is becoming more uh, difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, first, we are uh, seeing China being less willing to tolerate anything that it sees as dissent. Uh, and uh, I was talking about China's core interest earlier. It's almost as if China's core interests are widening or at least anything that challenging these interests, even in other countries are, are met with a very harsh uh, response. And of course, this leads to, to uh, even more negative views about China and more politicization uh, of China. So then you have the pressure both from the Chinese side on the government, but also on the parliament, the media, the civil society, uh, and so on. And on top of these factors, we also have the um, increased geopolitical competition between the United States and China. And of course, uh, Denmark and Norway are members of NATO. Uh, Sweden and Finland also have very close ties with the United States. Uh, so so uh, I, I expect the Nordic countries to continue to, to try to maintain some kind of balance because these countries also still see a lot of opportunities in China. And there's no interest in decoupling wholesale from China in these countries. But I think that this balancing is going to meet maybe even more pressure uh, in the future. Um, and this also connects to your second question about strategic autonomy and the transatlantic alliance. And I think it's very clear in all the Nordic countries. Um, and of course, um, it's only three of them, Norway, Denmark, and uh, Denmark, Finland, and Sweden that are EU members. But, but still, I think it's very clear in these countries that there's no kind of equidistance between China and the US here. Of course, the US is a very close partner. It's essential for, for um, security policy in, in these countries and so on. But, but I still think that, especially during the Trump administration, uh, it, it was a lot of um, a lot of disappointment in these countries about how this affected multilateral cooperation and, and so on. Um, uh, so so it, it led, led to some hesitation about aligning too closely with the United States and the Trump administration's China policy. Um, as things are developing, uh, especially with the most recent developments last week, 
uh, I think the most uh, likely uh, thing to happen going forward is that uh, the EU as a whole will, will uh, align uh, more closely with the United States than perhaps we would have expected some, some time ago. It's still a little bit too early to say, but, but as, uh, I, I think the, the, more, uh, the more the level of conflict between the EU and, and China increases, I think the more likely it gets that the EU will tie itself closer to the Biden administration's China policy. Thank you very much, Bjorn. Uh, Luke, what's your take on, on strategic autonomy, uh, on the EU strategic autonomy, and also um, how do you assess the comprehensive agreement on investments uh, with, with China on the timing and implications? I think, you know, the EU, um, from, from the outset of, of, the, of the Biden administration, wants to sort of um, have its hands in every pie, so to speak. They want to be able to increase their trade and investment with China, while at the same time uh, work uh, with the Americans and others on uh, world trade organization reform to ensure that uh, you know, there are you know, fair rules uh, across trade and investment. Um, this, you know, I think is harder, you know, it's easier said than done. Um, it's really hard to do in practice because it sort of assumes um, to a large degree that that business and politics or, or trade and, 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 and politics are separate and we can box them away from one another. And I think uh, the EU is learning that uh, this is not the case uh, in, in dealing uh, with, with China. Um, and and it, ha it, ha it may not be the case also when dealing with the U.S., uh, and, and, you know, I, I can just second Bjorn's comments that the recent uh, sanction uh, uh, exchange between the EU and China will, will likely push uh, the EU uh, more in, in an American direction. Um, and, and we need to be honest that, you know, the EU, not only EU democratic values, but their position towards uh, international trade rules and, and investment rules uh, coincide with, with, with the U.S. more so than they do with China. Um, now the investment deal, you know, it, one can say that it, it, it somewhat puts China or puts the EU in, in somewhat of a, a constrained position um, because there are of course uh, political constituencies and, and large European, particularly German companies that want to see that investment deal pushed through. And so for the next year and a half, um, those political constituencies and, and large corporations are going to be, I think, still encouraging EU policymakers and leaders to, to, to push on with the deal. Um, but it needs to be ratified by the European Parliament. Um, and the, the recent sanctions upset that possibility somewhat. Um, and then if it does go through, it also needs to be enforced. Uh, and there are some you know, major question marks around the, the strength of the enforcement mechanisms in the deal. Um, so it doesn't sort of uh, necessarily pave a, a very smooth future for, for EU-China cooperation. Thank you. We have a, a question about domestic politics. Uh, and there was recently a, a public opinion attitude survey that Una and Bjorn both worked on uh, from a consortium of European think tanks. Um, and that survey found that there were quite stark distinctions between European countries and their attitudes towards China. Um, and I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about the findings of that result and why certain countries have more 
or less positive attitudes towards China, um, as well as how sticky you think these attitudes will be. If we have a decline in attitudes towards China across Europe, is that likely to be the case? Are we likely to have negative opinions of China for quite some time? And what does that do in terms of constraining potential future cooperation uh, by European governments with China? Um, we also have a question here in the chat from Peter Frankopan, so Luke's colleague at Oxford. Uh, and he asks that there's been a lot of chat recently uh, about a Western equivalent to the Belt Road Initiative. Um, are such plans uh, for a Western-backed BRI realistic? And if so, where should be the initial focus of that sort of a project? Perhaps, Luke, we can start with you for the second question. Sure. I think, you know, a, a Western BRI is, is going to be hard to organize. Um, I think, you know, one could argue that there already is a Western BRI in, in the WTO, in the World Bank and, and other multilateral organizations that the West, uh, the, the US in particular, had a strong hand in, in, in uh, creating. And reforming those organizations is probably um, a better path uh, and more you know, feasible path uh, forward uh, alongside the Chinese who are members um, of those organizations. But it, you know, I think it's important to recognize that those multilateral organizations and, and the West at large still play a, a tremendous economic role in the world. I mean, the World Bank is still outpacing um, uh, the Belt and Road uh, and Chinese state policy banks in terms of finance in Latin America and Africa. I mean, the, the U.S. is still the largest trading partner with the EU, if you include the importance of services in trade. Uh, Japan is still the largest provider of finance to Southeast Asia, uh, outpacing China. So there already is tremendous economic engagement, and it might just be a, a marketing exercise that the West needs to do uh, with its engagement with the developing world and coming with that some reform. Can I can I ask a couple of questions? Throw a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, one is from Jarker Hellstrom, and actually it was his uh, policy brief I've been using to prepare for the for the event. And the question is: uh, Sweden's Defense Research Agency in late 2019 released a survey of Chinese corporate acquisitions in the country, in which it identified 51 majority acquisitions since 2002. Are you aware of any similar research projects in the Nordics and Baltics? Do you see a need to conduct such research? That's one question. Uh, and another question, uh, it's actually about the Baltics. Um, what is the status of Chinese investments in uh, Rail Baltic, uh, the Talsinski Tunnel project? Um, who wants to take the first one? Bjorn, maybe, maybe you. Uh, well, uh, perhaps I, I can try to respond to the earlier question coming from James about uh, opinion of China in, in Europe. And, and uh, as I mentioned earlier as well, in, in my country, Sweden, opinions were the worst in that survey that we did. And I believe that in UNO's country, Latvia, opinions were the, the, the best or least worst, at least. So we are seeing some variation in, in Europe. And I think there are uh, different different explanations for uh, that. One is that in some countries, China is more politicized in the sense that depending on 
which political camp you support domestically, you have uh, different views on China. And this connects in some countries to not as much China itself, but more as it takes the role of some kind of symbolic issue. We see that quite clearly in Czechia, for example. It's sort of a symbol for how you see the West, uh, Russia, and uh, the place of the Czech Republic uh, therein. Um, and then, of course, I think one other uh, important factor is uh, the level of tensions between China and various countries. Uh, recently, I think this has affected a number of countries quite a lot, not only Sweden, but also other countries. And uh, I think what has happened now recently is that China is much more on the agenda in different countries. China wasn't that much discussed previously, and views were maybe not very positive, but at least not not uh, very negative. Uh, I would say that views have been quite neutral. But when China is being discussed more, and it's being discussed more uh, since there are uh, tensions and conflict involving China and and, and Europe a lot as well as, as uh, developments going on in China, the situation in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang, and so on. And, and that leads to more uh, negative views. I think one hypothesis, at least, is that when views have become much more negative, and we've seen this in various countries just in two or three years, uh, views have changed uh, quite substantially, that we are seeing some kind of tipping point. Uh, I don't expect the views to bounce back in the Netherlands, in the UK, in Sweden, and Denmark, and so on, unless we are seeing some substantial change in China's domestic politics and how China relates to the outside world. Uh, I, I think we would need to see that for opinion to really shift in a more positive direction in a number of European countries, at least. Uh, so, so we will see how this plays out. But, but my, my bet would be that opinions are likely to stay quite negative for the foreseeable future. And obviously, this will have big ramifications for European-China policy and, and EU-China relations. I would gladly grab grab onto that and just also comment on the on the polling. Uh, you, you, Bjorn, uh, just uh, said that the Latvian results were very optimistic. I would like to say absolutely. And uh, uh, what happened is that when it came to economy, China economy, uh, it was quite positive with the uh, the response. Only Latvia was polled, so the question is whether Latvia is representative uh, in terms of the Baltic states. I just handed in like literally yesterday an article for Foreign Policy Research Institute on that, but. Um, it would, I would say that the public opinion right now echoes the uh, policymakers' opinion of 2012 through 2016. So hoping against all odds, hoping against hope that there is still some money to be made in dealing with China. But when it, came to, when it comes to values, to security, then um, uh, the opinions are also negative. So now to the Telsinki Tunnel question. That's an exciting one. So, Talsinki uh, Tunnel was a project uh, that was considered to that the, an MOU was signed with Chinese companies and to, to dig out a tunnel that would connect Helsinki to Tallinn and would link the rail Baltica. Uh, so this way, Helsinki could be also linked through a railroad connection and a, and, um, a tunnel connection to uh, uh, to the rest of Europe. So, uh, is Helsinki? What's the situation? So. As an idea, it is alive as an idea of EU connectivity, but it is dead in the murky, dark Baltic waters as an idea of Chinese component to that connectivity. This is critical. This is as critical infrastructure as they come. So I would say 
no to the Chinese component, most probably, absolutely. And right now also some, there are some research, there's some research coming out on this, uh, not by me, but so, but as, as, as a European idea, I would take that train. I hope it comes to life. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but what about the question about the uh, whether there are any research projects similar to what uh, Sweden's Defense Research Agency for did um, the uh, yeah survey of Chinese corporate acquisitions in the country? Uh, is anybody aware? In our in, in the Balt in the Baltic region, the amount is so low that it basically is up below the radar. We did a survey of of acquisitions, and we realized that there are only three that uh, uh, are over 1 million euro and mm -hmm. and it's um, it's not a majority stake or it's just kind of low tech such as in uh, timber manufacturing these kinds of things but definitely i echo that there is a need to conduct monitoring on this absolutely mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um okay let me move to the uh well, maybe the last question, since we are getting close to 11, uh, 11 um, a.m. Eastern time. Um, it's about the uh, scholarly community. Um, let me find it. Yes. How can the broader scholarly community best support China scholars in this situation when China is sanctioning individuals? Perhaps I, I can <laughs> try to start uh, saying something about that since I was also included in these most uh, recent sanctions. And, and uh, I, I want to thank uh, uh, a lot of people, including the people here uh, today, uh, for, for showing their support and solidarity. And, and uh, we've seen that from think tanks, from academics, from politicians uh, around Europe, uh, in America and in other parts of the world. And I think this, this shows that there is a substantial support for, for free and open research, also about China, also in difficult times. Uh, I, I think one thing to do uh, for individual uh, scholars is to uh, uh, be uh, aware of uh, attempts to, to pressure and interfere in open scholarly uh, inquiry uh, and to not shy away from uh, difficult oh, no. um, okay, maybe is it my connection? No. Oh goodness. Uh, Luke, Luke, can you? Can you join? Luke, you have your hand up. So uh, did you have a comment on this particular point? We're having a connectivity problem. <laughs> Discussing connectivity. Luke, I think Luke just came back into... Uh, Luke, did you have your hand raised? We lost... Yes, just to reiterate Jim's okay, comments. I think you know we we need to include researchers like Bjorn, of course, and and the institutions targeted in in our discussions to continue to engage them. And I think it's it's pertinent for the EU and and for national governments in the EU to support China research, to support the type uh, the, the work that uh, organizations like Merck's uh, and others have been doing on 
on the strategic issues, on economic issues, on a, on a broad uh, set of, of, of issues and policies um, that is essential to, con to continue that expansion because we need uh, more China research. We need more diversity of China research in Europe. And Bjorn, um, let's return to you. We lost, unfortunately, we lost connection midway. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would definitely second uh, what, what I heard from uh, Luke here when when I returned, and that's also a very strong signal uh, uh, I've been getting from my colleagues across Europe and, and also in the United States. So I think that is very encouraging to me. Okay, thank you very much. Um, our time is up, and I'll ask my colleague James to to uh, to close this session. Yeah, I'd like to thank our three panelists today for a great discussion, uh, to Una, Luke and Bjorn uh, for your insights. And especially given the current context of what's happening in the news, I think today has been a very timely discussion, uh, whether or not we intend it to be so. Um, I'd like to also thank our co-sponsoring institutions, uh, the Davis Centre for Russian Eurasian Studies, uh, Penny Skalnik and uh, Danielle Warner have provided tech support for today's event, uh, to the Fairbank Centre for co-sponsoring and also to the uh, Gunza Center for European Studies for also co-sponsoring today's event. Uh, we will have a third event coming up later in the semester, so please stay tuned for that. Uh, and for now, I'd like to thank all of our panelists and to my co-moderator, Nargis. So thank you all. <laughs>